please join me in James chapter 5 this morning. Um, as we're turning there, I just uh, wanted to say that this is a uh, wonderful time of year. I enjoy this time of year a lot. There's a lot that I love about it. It's a time of extra time with family. I, I work at a place that gives, it's a school, so there's a lot of time off between uh, the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Uh, enjoy that time. It's a great time with family. It's a time where even to a degree the world seems to focus in on at least an aspect of uh, our Lord's coming. Um, and yet it can be a time as well that can be a huge focus as the world has turned it into a time of commercialism and focus on things and and riches and wealth and, and focusing on those things which actually uh, perverts the message and takes away from the, the gift that God has given us in Christ. Now we do give gifts um, and that is uh, what God is doing in Christ, giving a gift, but uh, much of the way the world goes about it is uh, a focus on the wrong things and so we certainly have to be aware of that at this time of year. Um, we are going to talk specifically this morning about riches and the danger of riches and the severe warning that James gives about riches. But before we read James 5, I wanted to uh, go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his blessing and guidance on the service this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can celebrate at this time of year remembering how uh, Christ became flesh, how uh, our Lord took on humanity so that he could suffer and die and be raised again, uh, having paid in full uh, for the punishment that we all deserve. We thank you, Father, for the great gift that you've given through your Son, and that we can have eternal life through him and access to you. We thank you. And we thank you for the many special things about this time, but we also know it's a time where it can be a misguided focus, a focus on things and taking enjoyment and pleasure uh, in the gifts instead of you, ultimately, the giver. Help us, Father, to retain the right focus as we approach the holidays and help us as we look at this passage in James to take very seriously this warning and the, the danger of trusting in riches. Help us to learn from this, though I hope, Father, that it's a message that isn't directly about anyone here, but we know that it's a very important message for us to heed and take seriously, though. Help us to understand what you have said here and the impact on our lives. Help us to make the proper applications, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go ahead and read James 5, James 5, uh, verses 1 through 6 this morning. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who have mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. 
and the cry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So as we look at James 5, we see a very severe message. Uh, and it is a message about riches and, and a pronouncement of judgment against riches here. Um, but I think it's important to understand that the focus is not just simply on wealth being wrong um, and that having money is a sign of uh, sinfulness necessarily. Um, there is a focus in our society, it seems, that uh, a lot of rich people are characterized as evil and bad just simply because they have money. Um, I'm just picking on perhaps one movement that has uh, been popular in our country here, but perhaps you're familiar with the, uh, the Occupy movement that for a while was trying to disrupt activities on Wall Street. Um, there, there seems to be a focus in our society upon the evil of riches and those who have businesses and are running businesses must be evil, must be evil because they have so much money. And um, a lot of this philosophy, I think, is based upon socialism, the assumption that people need to redistribute the wealth, that it all needs to be somehow equal. So if we have people at the top or the top 1%, they are necessarily evil because they're not sharing. And, and I don't believe that's a biblical view at all. Um, there is abuse that happens, certainly happens in lots of companies and lots of places that is wrong. And as some of what we'll see as we look at James. But I want it to be clear that James is not condemning wealth in and of itself. What he's actually condemning is the misuse of wealth or the improper acquisition of wealth by sinful means. Those are the things that James is rebuking. So as we look at this, it's actually a very severe warning or pronouncement of judgment that's pending on those that are persecuting those in the church, as we'll see at the very end of this section. But you may ask the question, how does this fit into with what James has been talking about? James has been talking about the test of a living faith. How does this section of verses 1 through 6 fit in where it's this harsh pronouncement of judgment on the unbelieving rich? How does it fit? Well, ultimately, I think it fits by what continues in verse 7. We won't get there this morning, but in verses 7 through 11, he is going to encourage the people in the church to persevere underneath the persecution that they face in this life. And that persecution largely coming from the kinds of people that he's rebuking here in verses 1 through 6. So he is in 1 through 6 rebuking the unbelieving rich and then will encourage uh, his, main, his audience really in 7 through 11, the believers in the churches to persevere and patiently endure until the coming of the Lord. So that's how it fits. But in some ways, this seems a little bit out of uh, what he's been covering. And so uh, let's focus in, though, on this severe warning. James is talking about the pending punishment of persecutors. It's a very, very harsh message. And so let's look at verse 1 and again see the audience that James is engaging here. 
the audience that James is engaging. He says, verse 1, come now, you rich. He is talking about the rich. So his audience that he's engaging is the rich. Now, if you go with me to verse 13 in chapter 4, you see he uses a similar language to start that section. Verse 413, he says, come now, just as he says in 5.1, come now. But in 413, he's talking about businessmen or merchants who go about buying and selling things. But in 413 to 17, he's talking very differently to them in what he says. He's talking about the, the wrongness of being presumptuous. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, but yet he says how they ought to speak is that they should acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty in our day-to-day -day operations. We can't assume that we're just going to go and do business and automatically going to have profit and make money, and it's just that simple. We don't know what a day brings forth, and we need to trust the Lord. But as we uh, look at section 4, 13 to 17, he's clearly talking to an audience of believers. Those he expects that, they, though they may have acted this way, would change and respond and do what he's saying. In this section, 5, 1 through 6, there's no thought of change or them responding or repenting. Um, he never uses the words brothers or brother like he does in much of the rest of the book. So it's clear that he is addressing here the unbelieving rich. He is not addressing rich people categorically. Um, in fact, if you look with me back at chapter 1, you remember in chapter 1, as, as many, many weeks ago at this point, but in, in uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through uh, 11, it talks about the subject of the, the brother and humble circumstances. Um, and then in verse 10, the rich man should glory in his humiliation. And we talked about how the idea is a rich believer can rejoice in the transitory nature of life because he recognizes his riches won't gain him favor and status with God. So that knowledge and having that understanding is helpful and he should rejoice in having that knowledge. So there are clearly indications from the book of James that there can be rich believers. And you could also argue that what he's saying in chapter 4 would apply to businessmen who potentially are uh, wealthy as well, and they could be believers also. So it's not a blanket condemnation of someone who has money. Um, but I think it's more similar to what we see in chapter 2. If you look at chapter 2 in verses 6 and 7, he is talking about the personal favoritism that was taking place in some of the congregations where the rich were being given special favors, a special seating, and the poor was, were mistreated. Um, but he says about the rich in 2, 6, and 7, he says, But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So I believe what he is speaking about in chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, is the same kind of person that he's talking about in chapter uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The unbelieving rich. So his focus in this section is on the unbelieving rich 
who are rejecting Christ and are actually persecuting those in the Christian community. So wealthy, non-Christians persecuting or oppressing the Christian community. That's who he's after. That's what this is about. And um, we also see here, this, this pronouncement here is kind of similar to some of the Old Testament prophetic uh, pr pronouncements of judgment that we see uh, in some of the Old Testament prophets. Um, and there's no call here, ultimately, for a response of uh, humiliation or humbling themselves. It's simply an announcement of judgment. So, with that in mind, uh, let's look at some more details here um, to focus on what James has to say. This is really a biblical theme that's pretty common, a pronouncement of judgment uh, on those who are rich. Again, adding, understanding the clarifications. There are people who are rich, who are believers, but there are many who trust in riches. There are many who misuse riches. And there is a biblical theme as well that often um, it talks about the poor in this life being rich in the next and those who are rich in this life being poor in the next. So that is largely what he's talking about here. So um, we also see the action expected of these people. He says, come now rich, making clear who the audience is on that rich. He says, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. So James is pronouncing a judgment, and, and not just simply a chance to be judged, but really you understand the outcome of the judgment is what he's announcing here, and that's specifically condemnation. So James is pronouncing a condemnation on his people, and therefore the reaction that they would have in that day is to weep and to howl. It may look similar, to verse 9 of chapter 4. If you look there in chapter 4 and verse 9, James talks about someone who is acting worldly and has been mistreating his brother in the congregation, and he calls those people to repent. He says in verse 7, Submit therefore to God. Um, he says, verse 8, Draw near to God. And he says in verse 9, Be miserable and mourn and weep. So it looks very similar to the language there. But again, in chapter 4, the focus is upon someone repenting and coming to God, humbling themselves. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. But there is none of that language here in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It is instead a pronouncement of judgment and ultimately condemnation. So this attitude of weeping and wailing is the recognition of their choices in, their, in life and the rejection of Christ and the outcome that that is going to have in the final judgment. He's talking about that emotional response that they're going to have. Look at uh, Isaiah with me. We'll just turn to Isaiah quickly. Isaiah 13, though it's the uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint uses the exact same word for wail or howl. It says it's translated howl here, weep and howl. The exact same word is used in Isaiah 13 where it talks about this kind of response to someone in coming judgment. Isaiah 13 and verse 6. 
Isaiah 13, 6 says, Wail, it's the same word, wail or howl, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. There are many other passages actually in the Old Testament where the Septuagint uses the same word, but I'm just trying to illustrate for you. The point is, it's a word used in judgment. There is a harsh judgment coming, and it is the sorrow and misery that they experience being underneath that condemnation. He says they are going to experience miseries, and they are coming upon you. The idea is you are going to experience, you wicked, unbelieving rich who have rejected Christ, who are persecuting the Christian community, you are going to experience these miseries, but it's future. It hasn't happened yet. It's coming and this is what you should anticipate will happen. Now, it's not likely that any, of, uh, any or many of James's actual audience is, is going to read this. But again, understand his point is pronouncing this judgment on these unbelieving rich who don't repent of their sin, don't come to trust Christ, and are persecuting the Christian community. This is what's going to happen to them. And this then is ultimately an encouragement to the believers to continue to persevere because even though they're experiencing hardship and persecution right now, God will avenge his elect. It's coming. So this is what he's saying here. It is a proclamation of future judgment upon the unbelieving rich. So let's also look at the picture that he describes here of the coming judgment. He does not go into the details like we see in Revelation. Uh, we see in Revelation how it talks in chapter 20 about the great white throne and the judgment there and the, the dead standing before God. Um, but he is nonetheless picturing the future and what they should understand is going to happen in the future. Though I realize on the surface it may be hard to see that, but we'll walk through that. But um, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, some of uh, the chick tracks. They uh, sometimes have very uh, graphic illustrations. I thought this one was a powerful illustration of the future judgment. Um, it's just a picture here of what it might be like at the Great White Throne Judgment. Of course, we don't know exactly uh, all the details, but the focus that James is uh, on here in these next verses is what this future judgment is going to be like for these people. And it is a sobering, serious warning and uh, pronouncement that he makes here. So let's look at verses 2 and 3, where we're going to see the picture that James is describing here of what's going to happen. First of all, he talks about the state of their wealth. What's going to happen to their riches, to their money, to their goods that they've stored up? Well, verse 2, it says, Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. So in verses 2 through 3, I believe we see a picture of the future judgment and what the situation is going to be like for the unbelieving rich. He talks, first of all, about the state of their wealth. Notice in verses 2 and the beginning of 3, he talks about Riches rotted, garments having become moth-eaten, and gold and silver have rusted. Now, in the ancient world, there were essentially three categories of wealth. 
There were, because it was an agrarian society, there was land and the, and the things that it produced, so the crops or the grains, right? So I believe that's what he's getting at with his first uh, statement there about your riches have rotted. These things that you've stored up, this, these crops, they're going to be rotten. They're not going to help you in the future. They're going to rot. They're going to be of no, no value and no good when the end comes. In the final judgment, you're going to have rotten riches of no value. He also talks here about the garments. Your garments have become moth-eaten, or your clothes, right, have been ruined. He also talks about their gold or their coins are also decaying. He says your gold and your silver have rusted, or the idea is they've decayed, they're they're uh, falling apart. They're of no value. So thinking forward to the future judgment, a rich person stored up lots of goods. How is that going to help in their future judgment? It's not. That stuff is going to be no good. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to go away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rust. It's going to deteriorate. It's going to decay and therefore be of absolutely no help to them in a the future judgment. And it's a painful picture to the wealthy that their wealth, though they trust in it now, is not going to last. It's not going to help them. And it is also a picture of the, tempor- t- uh, the temporary nature of wealth and its inability to help in judgment that also pictures themselves. They too are going to ultimately perish because they've trusted in riches instead of in Christ. And notice also there's some surprise witnesses that will be there at the judgment in the end. Look at verse 3. It says, And their rust will be a witness against you. So imagine the irony here. Rich people trusting in their riches to take care of them, to meet their needs, that they would have lavish luxury in life, And ultimately, the riches themselves are going to be witness against the rich. The riches will speak against them, as we'll see more uh, later on here, uh, because they have misused those riches, or they have improperly acquired or retained those riches. So we have surprise witnesses here. We also have destruction described about these unbelieving rich. Notice it says, after their rust will be a witness against you, it also says, and will consume your flesh like fire. I believe the point here is, these riches that you've trusted in, instead of helping you, are ultimately going to lead to your destruction in the lake of fire. You are ultimately going to perish and suffer for eternity because you have trusted in your riches you have misused your riches you have not repented of your sin and trusted in christ so ultimately you will be destroyed and we also see here uh, a sentence that may be a, or a statement that's maybe a little hard to understand but i think the point is it is a worse, worthless investment that they've made in riches it, it says It is in the last days you have stored up your treasure. I believe the idea is you've stored up this treasure. We're in the end times. 
And when we get to the end where Christ comes, these things that you value, these things that you've invested in, are going to produce nothing for you. Not going to do any good for you. You have made a worthless investment. Have you ever made a worthless investment? You ever put money into a, a company or a stock or something to watch that tank and go down? Or have you been tricked uh, by some scheme or something? I, I have to admit, when I was a young man, I was not content with the wages that I was making at the time and wanted to make more money. Uh, I believe a lot of the intention was good. I wanted to be able to provide more for my family and things like that. But uh, there were lots of schemes, and this was kind of before the internet became a big thing. You can really search things and find things online. Well, I found this thing that basically was, you know, pay us $100 and we'll give you leads on all these avenues and opportunities to make some extra money and stuff like that. I got a CD in the mail and looked at that thing and it was an absolute piece of garbage. A bunch of scams and things that they were promoting or trying to encourage you to participate in. Absolutely worthless. Now, I don't know if I mentioned, but I paid $100 for that thing. Now, I, I was on tight means at the time. If you've experienced something like that, I'm guessing some of you had, I'm seeing some nods of the head. It destroys you. I, I was devastated. I'm like, what am I doing? Number one, I've wasted all this money. I spent $100 on something that's given me nothing. Number two, I felt like a fool. Why did I fall for this stupid scam? It bothered me. It, it was a wound, a serious wound to my pride. Why did I succumb to such a stupid thing? It was so dumb. Why didn't I even talk to anybody? It was so dumb. It bothered me deeply about my failure and my falling into this. Imagine... Magnify that. Think about these people at the end of their lives having devoted themselves to the pursuit of money to realize it's all worthless and powerless to save them and rescue them for the judgment that they are going to experience. What a misery. And that's the kind of pronouncement James is making. These people have been ruthless and mean and cruel with their money. They've misused it. They've trusted in it. And it's going to be a miserable end for them. And next, I believe James identifies the problem specifically of what they've done or lists the charge, how they've misused their money. Look at verse 4. They have withheld wages. They have withheld wages. It says in verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So we have the wealthy crowd, again, is identified here. These are the people who own land. They are rich landowners who have fields and they have workers that they've cheated and it says they, their job duties were to uh, mow the fields. These are people working in their fields, harvesting crops and grains and things for them. And these rich people have withheld their pay. Now, there was an obligation. 
Back in that day, it was an agrarian society. They didn't have the means we have nowadays. They didn't have preservation of things the way we do. They also didn't have banks um, in the sense we do. You have electronic access. You know, you need money, just go get something, right? You have credit and things like that. It wasn't like that back in that day. You needed to get paid regularly in order to have the things that you need. In fact, if we were to look at Deuteronomy 24, there is a... a, a commands given to those who are the rich landowners that they can't withhold pay. People need their pay so they can take care of their family. But in this case, these rich people have not only delayed the payment, they've completely defaulted on the payment. They haven't even paid them at all. And he says that they are personally responsible. It's interesting, he says, which have been withheld by you. It's not your worker did this and you didn't know about it. You've purposefully withheld. You are personally responsible. And he says there are witnesses to the crime. What are the witnesses to the crime? He says, first of all, these, uh, it says, uh, cries out. The pay, the pay cries out against you. Again, the money itself, your decaying gold cries out against you. You've stored it up, but it cries out against you. Very similar to the concept of what we see in Genesis chapter 4 and how Abel was killed by Cain and God says his blood cries out to me. In the same way, this money that should have been given to these workers cries out that justice has not been done. And there's a cry of the money itself. He also says the laborers themselves cry out to God. He says the outcry of those that did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord Sabaoth. That is the cries here are prayers to God. These people that have been cheated cry out to God and God hears them. Now this word here, this name for the Lord, Sabaoth, it's not Sabbath or the day of rest. The, the word here is actually the Lord of hosts. The Lord who is the commander of the heavenly army. That's the one who's getting this message. So he is ready to deal with these that have cheated their workers. A very sobering warning. He also says that they've lived selfishly indulgent in this life. It says in verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, we say it's not wrong, per se, to have wealth. It's how you use it. Well, how did they use the wealth that they have? In some ways, we see they cheated to get it. They should have given people money. Because they haven't given money, they've had more than they should have had. And what have they used it for? Just to heap upon their selfish, sinful pleasures. And we see they are compared to cattle that are fattened before the slaughter. They have sinfully pursued their own pleasures, luxuriously enjoying the riches they have that they should have been giving to those working for them. And they are making themselves fat, like the cattle before the slaughter. And then he reaches the conclusion of it. What has all this led to? Ultimately, it leads to they have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Again, I think this is language very similar to what we see in chapter 2. 
in verses 6 and 7. The unrighteous rich or the unbelieving rich use their money and their power to have influence and control over the lives of others. And specifically, they've done that to the believers and in many cases have condemned or put them to death. And in contrast to how they behave, note that the righteous do not resist. They haven't done wrong. They're not resisting. They, uh, in many ways, like Christ said, turn the other cheek and they suffer patiently at the hand of these rich people. And God is saying, eventually, God's going to deal with that in a dreadful way. For these people who have not repented of their wrongdoing. So we see here the climax of the sinful progression. They started perhaps with just an interest in money. They cheated. They hoarded. And they ultimately then murder when it suits their interests or their desires. They have abused the wealth that they have, and therefore there is a strong condemnation for these people we see here in James 5, 1 through 6. So we may find it hard. What, what's the lesson for us here? How, how do we apply this? Hopefully no one in this room is uh, matching the criteria of the things we're talking about here as future judgment. If you are, there's still opportunity to repent. Christ hasn't come yet. The judgment hasn't happened. There's an opportunity to repent. But I assume I'm speaking mostly to believers. So what is the takeaway that we see from this? Though it may not be James's main point, I think it is valuable to see the futility of trusting in riches. There are many warnings in Scripture about the danger of riches. You remember even the parable of the sower talks about one of the types of seed that doesn't grow and produce fruit is the seed that's choked out by the thorns or the cares of this world. The riches of this world become a focus and uh, cause that seed to die. There is a very real danger for loving riches. And God says, Jesus says in the Gospels, you cannot serve God and money. There's a very real danger, and we need to take seriously the danger of money. And we should in no way be jealous. Do you look at a person like Bill Gates and think, man, what I could do with all those billions of dollars, how great that would be? I don't know for sure where he's at spiritually, but my point is simply that he's a very wealthy person. But if we had all that wealth, that doesn't guarantee happiness, and it certainly isn't going to help in eternity. Jesus talks about what, what is a man going to give in exchange for his soul, even if he's gained the whole world and lose your soul. What good is that? Of what profit is that? We need to be careful not to love riches and not to be jealous of those who are rich in this world. We also need to understand that those people who are rich and powerful and influential in this world and cause us trouble will ultimately experience the judgment of God if they don't repent. And that's 
the way James is using it in this passage is to be an encouragement to believers to continue patiently until the Lord comes and does that. We should not seek to avenge ourselves. God will avenge his elect. God is loving and we should pray for people to repent and be forgiven. But we should also understand God is just and he is going to punish people who misuse wealth, reject him, and punish believers. God will deal with those people and we need to patiently seek the Lord and continue to live for him in spite of the trouble that we face. So we also might make one last application. How are we using what God has given us? James does tell us in 127 that true religion is to help the widows and those who are in true need in, in their affliction. We should use the means that God has given us, not selfishly hoarding them up like these rich people, but to use our means to help others who have genuine needs and to support the cause of the gospel as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are gracious. We thank you that though we know we all deserve punishment, even though we may not be rich people in the sense like what these people are and misused money by withholding wages and things like that, we all deserve your punishment. And we thank you that through Christ we can have eternal life and have uh, an eternity with you. I pray, Father, for anyone who is outside of Christ, you'd help them to repent and come to trust in Christ, that they too would have eternal life. But help us, Father, to take seriously the warnings about money and its temporary nature and its inability to ultimately solve any of the real problems that we have and the real needs. We know that you use money, you give it to us to take care of things, but ultimately, Father, it's your doing, it's under your control. Help us to trust in you and help us to actively warn those who are trusting riches of the foolishness of that, that they would turn from it and come to know Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.